Hello, welcome back to Franklin Covey's On Leadership podcast series. I'm Scott Miller, your host each week. I'm also, as you may know, the author of a new release from HarperCollins called Master Mentors, 30 Transformative Insights from Our Greatest Minds. I've been working with Franklin Covey and HarperCollins on really recapping some of the greatest interviews we've had over the past, gosh, 200 nearly episodes, where each year for HarperCollins, I write a book where I highlight 30 new guests and 30 new transformational insights, fast, easy, breezy, available both in audio, print, and digital, and soon to be a video book from Lit Video Books. Check them out. Honored to be a part of the author of the Master Mentor series for Franklin Covey. Today's guest is Kevin Brown. He's the author of the book, Unleashing Your Hero. Joining us from just outside of Orlando, Florida today, where uh, Kevin and I share a lot of fun similarities. Kevin, welcome to On Leadership. Hey, Scott. Great to see you. Thanks for having me. Great to see you. And thank you for joining us, Kevin. I mentioned off air to you that you and I have an uncanny number of similarities for two guys whose paths have never crossed prior to today. As we'll talk about today, uh, the Disney World Family has been a big part of your life, mainly because of your son, who we'll talk about today. I worked for four years for the Walt Disney Company as a member of the Celebration team, the team that actually built the town of Celebration back in the 90s. You and I share a remarkably interesting passion for the Cracker Barrel, and I was there yesterday for lunch as well. We had the same breed of dog. We both, at the peak of our careers as officers in large companies, stepped aside at our own volition and decided to write and to speak and to inspire others. And we have that similar pain and hopefully some success as well. And I'm delighted you're here to join us today. Kevin, for those um, listeners and viewers from around the world who may not be familiar with you or yet have not read your book, today we're going to get quite intimate with some of the details of your life that I think will be um, endearing and horrifying inspiring, insightful to many people. So I encourage every listener and viewer to stick with us throughout this entire interview. This is going to be one of those interviews that you want to maybe even pull your car off the side of the road and park it. Maybe you want to step off the treadmill or step out of the kitchen and find a spot in your office or your car or your home or wherever you are to deeply settle in and watch and listen to Kevin's journey today. It's going to get real. And before we get too real, let's talk a little bit about what your journey has been, mainly professionally, to bring you now to writing the second book of yours and to be one of the most booked speakers on the circuit today. Talk a bit about your journey. We'll get into your story. Yeah, absolutely. And thank you for that. And we are definitely kindred spirits. But my my journey, 32 years in the franchise world, it's really all I ever did uh, for my career as an adult. And Honestly, I loved every minute of it. You know, you think about franchising, franchising is the art of duplication, very much like leadership. We teach others a system, they replicate it, and they get similar results. And I I loved what I did. I spent a lot of time doing it. Never, ever saw this chapter of my life coming. But sometimes life has other plans for us. And a seed was planted way back in 2008 about this idea of being a hero and what it really means to be a hero at work and at home. And of course, we hear a lot about heroes today. We hear a lot about what it means to be essential. And the doors opened for me. And this journey began when I stepped on stage in 2008 and gave the very first hero speech. And from that day till now, my life has never been the same. Literally have been around the world telling a story that hopefully inspires people, moves them from where they are to someplace new. And by the end of 2016, I was speaking so much. I retired from my day job 
And in the last five and a half years, we've, we've done over 650 events. And like I said, literally around the world, we're really blessed to do what we do. Kevin, you are living the life that countless number of people that right now are watching and living that are you know, interested in being, becoming a thought leader, that are interested in writing a book or building their brand, their influence, becoming a, a, a hero, identifying heroes and talking about them. So we'll talk a bit about your pivot to being uh, a world-renowned uh, keynoter and speaker and coach in a few moments. Uh, your book is really about what it means to be a hero. You call it unleashing your hero. And in a few minutes, we'll talk about how you define a hero. What are the four characteristics? And maybe we'll bring the, the word off a little bit of platitudes, right? And, and talk about how we can be a hero in others' lives and maybe better appreciate those that are in ours. Before we talk about the hero part of your book, I'd like to um, appreciate you for agreeing to be um, very vulnerable and transparent in today's conversation. Um, you were raised in a fairly typical American family. I guess you and I are about the same age. You share very respectfully in the book that your mother suffered from perhaps some emotional mental illness, maybe even some hypochondriac, and that impacted your life. And you talk about how you suffered a trauma that in many parts of the world in our country is an unspeakable trauma that probably needs to be brought to life and to talk about so that we can be aware of it. I'd like to right now give you carte blanche to take as much time and as long as you need to share what happened to you, how you responded to it and the impact it had on you and what perhaps leaders and parents and caregivers, siblings, relatives, neighbors, clergy people, educators should be aware of so that they can make sure no one follows the path that you did. Yeah, I appreciate that. And it was one of the most difficult things about writing this book was really digging into what happened to me. You know, it's easy to, to sit down and look at a process or look at an idea, look at a definition of a hero. It's another thing to really get reflective on your life. And so the first half of the book is really a prequel. It's really the, the buildup to where my life got off the rails. I, I did have a, a, a typical upbringing, blue collar uh, upbringing. My dad was a Navy man. And as you mentioned, my mom suffered from some, some physical and mental illnesses that, um, that influenced me for sure. And from age 13 to 16, I went through a really dark period in my life. A close family friend, a, a trusted um, member of our church uh, betrayed the trust that my 13-year-old self had put in him. And, uh, and it wasn't just me, it was a number of, of young men. And this predator groomed us, this predator took advantage of us, and my life got really ugly really fast. And by the time I was 16 years old, I had run away from home, I quit school. I used to sleep in hospital waiting rooms, use public restrooms to get ready in the mornings, and life continued to spiral out of control. And Scott, back then we didn't talk about those things. Uh, I didn't go to my parents, I didn't go to the authorities, I didn't go to, to anyone at school or church, and I quietly dealt with it. And I began to wonder what was wrong with me. What had I done to create this? And the shame, the guilt, the embarrassment piled on and I began to burn bridges. I began to hang around the wrong people. I developed a lot of bad habits and life was ugly for a long, long time. And by the time I was in my early twenties, somewhere along the line, I'd inherited a family car and every relationship was broken. People who had been kind enough to help me, people who gave me a place to sleep had all given up on me because I was dragging around a 13 year old broken kid. And I was angry at the world. I was angry at everybody around me. 
And those people got tired of that cloud I was dragging around. And I used that kid for a long time. I used him as an excuse for not doing well. I used him as a reason for not moving forward in my life. I used him as a reason to be angry. And by the time I was in my early 20s, I lived in my car. Uh, no prospects for the future. And the only thing I had in that car was a green duffel bag that had everything I owned in it with plenty of room left over. And that 13-year-old kid sitting right next to me, chirping in my ear. And he used to tell me every night, it's time to go, man. Everybody's given up on you. There's nothing here for you. Why don't we go check out the afterlife? And unfortunately, or fortunately, I couldn't pull the trigger. And that kid kept talking to me. I used to pray, Scott. I used to pray that somebody would come along in the darkness and do it for me. And that prayer went unanswered. And so if I was too chicken to check out, I was going to have to figure out how to change. I had to get around better people. I had to start putting stuff in my mind that would help me instead of hurt me. And I answered a, an ad for a, a salesperson in the newspaper. That's how we used to find jobs back then, newspapers. And I answered an ad for a salesperson. I, the first thing I needed to do was figure out how to survive. I needed to figure out how to make money. I didn't have a high school diploma. I didn't have any college training. I had zero credentials. And on the other end of the phone line was, uh, was an old man, crusty old sales guy from South Texas. His name was David. And I told him my whole story. I told him everything. I told him all about that 13-year-old kid. I have no idea why I went into such detail. But I remember telling him, I said, David, I have no credentials, but I'm willing to work hard. I'll do whatever you tell me to do. And this old man took a chance on a street kid. And he took me in and he started to shepherd me and mentor me. And he started to lead me. He was the first real leader in my life. And he didn't shy away from my story. He didn't shy away from my background. And this guy started to work on me. And he was the first one to grab the storyline that life had given a 13-year-old kid. And he started to rewrite it, which I think is an essential thing that leaders do. To take the storyline that life gives us, whether it's a pandemic, a diagnosis, an opinion, or a storyline that was written for a 13-year-old kid. And he planted a new, new, new vision, a new story. And he went to work every day to water it and to grow it. And this man changed my life. And he never gave up on me, even though it was hard. Because when you're trying to draw the potential out in somebody, sometimes they don't like you during that process. And there were times that I didn't like David because he pushed me and he caused me to confront things that I didn't want to confront. And over time, this guy became like a second father to me and he helped get my life out of the ditch and I'll forever be grateful to him. Kevin, thank you for that. Uh, for regular viewers and listeners of this podcast, you know I am a co-parent with my wife, Stephanie, to three young boys who at this time are right now seven, nine, and 11, and as a parent, as a father, I'm of course uh, uh, very interested in, in protecting my three boys from a similar fate without um, revisiting the exact details. And you're not necessarily a clinical expert on this issue, but of course you are firsthand victim of it and you have a lot to say about it. What advice would you give anyone, whether they are a formal parent, whether they are a, a guardian, an adoptive parent, whether they're a foster parent, a grandparent, a neighbor, any role where they have a level of implicit protection over someone mm -hmm. that can be victimized by a predator, what should the things we know about behavior change in our children that we should be aware of? And what are some things that you've learned to become aware of that we could do proactively to make sure that our children don't face a similar fate that you did? Yeah, no, it's a great question. And a lot of it has to do with awareness. You know, we live in a world now where we're in a 24 seven state of distraction, right? Our heads are down, our thumbs are moving. We've got a million things going on. 
And sometimes we we get detached from the reality of the world. And I, I, I look back and, and I've had a lot of therapy. I'm still in therapy. I do a lot of work to make sure that I, I continue to move forward and that I keep feeding my mind with the right things. And one of the things that I know for sure is that the behavior change comes swift and they are actually really quite noticeable. But the problem is we are distracted and we miss them. And my folks thought I was on drugs. They thought that something had happened at school or they, they weren't really sure what had happened. Of course, this particular scenario never crossed their mind, especially with this particular human being who was a close friend of our family. I withdrew. I was a straight A student. I was in sports. I was good at sports. I was pretty popular as a kid, I, you know, by all accounts was a kid that was going to go to college, was going to do great things. And it was like somebody flipped a switch. And all of a sudden I began to rebel. I began to withdraw. I began to get angry. And once that process started, it was like a snowball and it kept getting worse. And then I got angry with my parents and we were at odds most of the time. And they put me in a mental hospital for kids, for teenagers. Uh, I believe I was in there three times. There's a place in Grand Rapids, Mich Grand Rapids, Michigan. And I ran away from there every single time they put me in there. And so back then I developed the habit of running, which is also one of the telltale signs. When you begin to run away from your life, you begin to run away from the people who love you. You begin to run away from the things that you used to find joy in. Those are the signs. Those are the things that says, look, something's not right here. As a dad, I am hyper vigilant to what my son sees, who he's around, where he goes, especially now we live in a digital age. We didn't have the internet back then. And now predators show up online. They can seep into your phone, into your computer, into your iPad. They can seep into your life in ways. And we live in a world where people want to be famous. We live in a world where people want to have friends. They want to be connected. And this idea of, of being online really scares me. So we're, we're very vigilant about looking at what he's looking at and seeing what he sees and understanding who he's around. Kevin, I'll pivot from this in just a moment. Uh, can you give us any advice as a parent? Um, why do victims of sexual abuse not feel comfortable talking about it with their parents or p trusted people in their lives? Is there something that I can do differently as a parent to my three sons? A, you've told me, and I, and I have some sense of how to prevent it, but if it does happen, is there anything I can do as a dad to make sure that my sons feel comfortable coming and telling me so that I can fix it and help solve it for them? Yeah, and again, a great question. I didn't have this conversation with my own father until I was in my 40s. And there's part of me that wishes I hadn't had the conversation with him because my father at that point felt like he had failed me as a young man. And my, dad's, my dad and I sat and talked for hours. My dad's one of my heroes. And we talked for hours about it. And I think one of the things that came out of that conversation was having this openness, this willingness to have these conversations. And again, this was a different time. This was this was a different time when when young men or young women didn't have those conversations with their parents. And I think part of this is, is relational and helping our our boys and our girls understand that, listen, it's OK. Whatever happens in your life, whatever is on your mind, we can talk about this. And with our son, Josh, he has special needs. He's on the autism spectrum. So we were, again, hyper vigilant about asking questions 
about digging into what's happening in the junior high locker room, what's happening in the high school locker room, what's happening in this program or that program or this camping trip or this outing, what's going on and making sure that they know that it's okay. Whatever's going on, whatever's been said, whatever hurt you feel, you can talk to us about it because I didn't feel comfortable talking to my parents about it because I was too busy feeling ashamed, feeling guilty, feeling like I had done something to cause this, that I had done something wrong, which is part of the grooming process in the first place, right? They, they wanna create an environment where they control you mentally. They control you in ways that you don't even understand you're being controlled. And part of that is the silence. They teach you how to be silent. They teach you that, that if you say anything, there's going to be, there's going to be problems. And so you, you suffer in silence and you deal with it. And having to do it all over again, of course, I would have went to my dad. Um, and that's one of the things that in my 40s, I realized that I should have. And now almost 54 years old, I'm still dealing with it. And so it, it is something that you deal with for the rest of your life. And you get good therapy and you do deep work and you fix it. Kevin, thank you again for your vulnerability. Uh, our co-founder, Dr. Stephen R. Covey, you of course know as the uh, seminal author of the book, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. This book has gone on now to sell close to nearly 50 million copies around the world. Of the many insights Dr. Covey left us with, one of them was this concept of a transition figure that all of us in our life, if we look deep enough, have had someone in our lives where they have transitioned us to a new place, a new mindset, a new paradigm, a new situation, new opportunity. You, of course, are the beneficiary of many of those in your life. You've gone on to a remarkable career as an author and speaker and, and uh, executive leader. And you share as kind of a centerpiece in your book a key pivotal opportunity you had inside of your former company where you were uh, invited to give a keynote speech. As a result of the success of that speech, you went on to become a pretty substantial brand ambassador inside for the organization, and then, of course, it helped you to pivot outside. Prior to giving this speech at your annual company sales conference, which you call as a key pivot point in your life, you decided to write about and talk about heroes. And then when you, um, I think it was the CEO that agreed to let you speak on that quite readily, you had some second guessing, and you were pondering how to create your speech, and you went to your wife for some advice. And in the book, you share a passage around what your wife said verbatim. I'd like to read it to remind you of what she said, and to all of our listeners and viewers, I'm going to read about four or five sentences, and I'm going to ask you to bring that to life. You're, you're thinking about this speech you're going to give, and you're wrestling with what is a hero, and how can you write about it? And this is what your wife said. We are all the result and the accumulation of the people who've cared enough to guide us, to pick us up when we are down, to kick us in the butt when we are wrong and pat us on the back when we've done well. The people who had faith in us when we lacked faith in ourselves. If you don't see those faces when you look in the mirror, then you are missing the picture completely. You are not a self-made man or woman. You are the sum total and the byproduct of everyone who has ever shown up in your life in a positive way. Think about all the people who have stopped by and poured a little bit of themselves into you, leaving you better than when they found you. Kevin, riff on that. 
Yeah. Well, first of all, my wife is one of the most smartest human beings I have ever clearly. Known duh. <laughs> she's a, she's an amazing leader, an amazing mother. She gave up her career to take care of our son and to raise me as well. And when I was struggling to put that speech together, I went to her when I don't know what to do. I go to her. We've been married for 25 years. I do everything she tells me to do because I'm afraid she might leave. And I remember that day distinctly. It was probably the one reason if I look back on this entire hero's journey that I've been on, that was the, the moment. That was the moment that I realized this was way bigger than me. And this idea of looking in the mirror, because her exact question to me that day was, what do you see when you look in the mirror? She said, if you want to talk about heroes, just look in the mirror. And of course, I was flattered at first. And then she said, I'm not done. She said, when you're done looking at yourself, I want you to see all of the people who stand there with you, the preachers and teachers, the friends, family, colleagues, and strangers alike, people who have shown up in your life and moved you from where you were to someplace better. She said, you're not a self-made man. You didn't get here by yourself. And that's when she said, you're the sum total and the byproduct of every single human who's ever shown up in your life. And I'll never forget that moment because in that moment I went to the mirror and I stood there and I stared at myself for an uncomfortable amount of time. And sure enough, over a period of time, I started to see the faces of all of the influencers in my life. And that's when I ran back to my yellow pad. I wrote down one question and said, what does a hero look like? And that's a moment that was a defining moment in this hero's journey that she and I have been on. Kevin, uh, later in our conversation, I'm going to have you actually illustrate what you think are the four characteristics of a hero. Uh, before we do that, I want you to talk about Disney. Uh, because Disney is a central theme in your book, not so much because of maybe your personal love for Disney, but your son Josh, also known as Josh Brown, who you write about uh, very lovingly uh, in the book, is a, is a not so um, atypical uh, young boy who loves Disney. Of course, you mentioned he is on the a spectrum and has an um, interesting love for both weather and Disney. Will you take, again, as much time as you need? I want you to paint the story of how Disney and B at Disney, that's a person's name, B, became a hero and really the manifestation of what you think makes a hero in today's world. Take as long as you need to, from beginning to end to tell the story about B. Yeah, B, we call her Aunt B, one of, one of, the, one of the foundational leaders that I write about in this book is an executive chef at Walt Disney World. And when Josh was five years old, they diagnosed him as being on the spectrum. And there's a, there's a whole story there too that hopefully we'll get to. But when he was five years old, they told us he had autism. And so we, we went to work. We went to work, Lisa went to work doing what moms do. And that's providing a, a path for her son. And when Josh was seven years old, he discovered Walt Disney World. And if you know anything at all about kids with autism, when they get something on their brain, it's the only thing that exists in the whole wide world. Literally for two years, 24 seven, 365, this kid obsessed about going to Walt Disney World. And we waited until he was nine years old. We wanted to make sure he could enjoy the trip and that it wasn't so overwhelming for his dad because I'm not a good vacation taker. I never have been. And we went when he was nine years old, we were living in Nashville, Tennessee. We flew to Orlando, Florida for the trip of a lifetime, eight days at Disney. And on the very first day we got up and we were excited, we were ready to go. And we had a list, you know, kids with autism, they like everything mapped out, planned out, rides, parks, meet and greets, the whole deal. Lisa's background, my bride's background is in accounting and finance. So we, Scott, we had, we had an Excel spreadsheet, everything we were going to do 
was mapped out by the minute. And on the very first morning, I said to Josh, and, and he goes by Josh Brown. He thinks it's hyphenated all one word. I said, Josh Brown, where are we eating breakfast? And he said, Dad, we're eating in this hotel. We're going to ease you into this. No lines, no trams, which proves he knows his dad pretty well. And we head out the door. We get down to the, the, the restaurant. And this, the hostess greets us with this gigantic smile. She said, good morning, Brown family. We're so glad that you're here. We have a table just for you. And I, listen, I'm making mental notes. I'm thinking, man, giant smile. What a great way to start this day. Brown family, we love the sound of our own name. Table just for us. How special is that? And she took us to our table and she gave us our menus. And she said, Brown family, may I be the first to wish you a magical day? And I'm thinking this is, this is going to be the trip of a lifetime. And our server came over and our server had zero expression. She actually looked like she was a little bit ticked off. And she came over and she said, can I get you something to drink? And my wife said, you can, but I need to tell you my son's on a very special diet. Lots he can have and lots that he can't have. And before Lisa could say another word, she literally put her hand in my wife's face and said, ma'am, I need to stop you right there. I, I won't be able to take your order. You'll need to speak to the executive chef. And she disappeared. And quite frankly, at that point, I'm a little irritated. You know, I, I've got a boatload of money wrapped up in this trip. I have some expectations. Smiling is one of them. If you could whistle while you work, I'd greatly appreciate that a lot. And in that moment, Lisa looked at me and she said, babe, let me handle this. I don't need Captain Freakout to make an appearance on day one of our vacation. I'll handle it. And I didn't say a word. And from the back of the restaurant, this executive chef emerged. Easy to spot, big white coat, giant chef boy RD hat. And she came out, she looked right at Josh Brown and she said, good morning, sunshine, how are you? And Josh is very shy. He just lowered his head and he said, good morning. And she said, my name is B. I understand somebody's on a special diet. How can I help? And she took out a notebook and she started asking questions. The, the great ones always ask brilliant questions. What's, what's, what's on his diet? What can he have? What, what can he not have? Where do you get that? How do you make that? And the most important question, what's his favorite? She got done and she looked at Josh and she said, okay, sunshine, what's for breakfast? Apple pancakes, please. That's his favorite. She said, sunshine, I'm so sorry. I don't have the ingredients. Mom told me how to make them, but I don't have the stuff. How about some bacon and eggs and some special toast just for you? He nodded. She left. Miss Personality came back and took the rest of our order. We ate. We left. We were satisfied. The next morning we got up. I said, Josh Brown, where are we eating breakfast? He said, Dad, I want to go see Aunt B. <laughs> and I, I looked at Lisa and I said, who? And she said, B, the executive chef, B-E-A. He said, Dad, I want to go see Aunt B. And I said, Josh, there's all these other places for us to go. We've got an entire list. He said, Dad, I really want to go see Aunt B. So we went back down to the restaurant. Hostess greets us, same giant smile. No reservation, no problem. We have a table just for you. She takes us to the exact same table we were at the day before. Guess who's working our section? You, yeah, I hope you said Miss Personality, because that's who it was. It was Miss Personality. She's working our section. And she sees that it's us, and she doesn't even come over to the table. She stops in her tracks, goes to the back of the restaurant, and from the back of the restaurant, Aunt B. She comes out, and she says, good morning, sunshine, and Josh lowered his head, and he said, good morning. She said, what's for breakfast, sunshine? Apple pancakes, please. You got it, sweetheart, coming right up. And I said, oh, uh, Aunt B, do you remember us from yesterday? She said, yes, sir, I do. I said, yesterday you didn't have the ingredients. She said, true. I said, today you do? She said, yes. I said, where did you get them? She said, the store. <laughs> and I said to her, I said, you sent somebody to the store? 
And she said, no, sir, I stopped on my way home last night. We, we have them all over Florida. Anybody can go. <laughs> and in that moment, I looked at her, Scott, and I said, B, why would you do that? And her answer was profound. She said, I thought that's what he wanted. <laughs> I said, oh, yeah, let me make a note. Give the people we serve and serve with what they want or need, whether we have it or not. And ball game, it was over. From that day on, for eight days, we had breakfast with Aunt B every single day. And that was the beginning of this idea about heroes. Because in that moment, B could have made a decision. Listen, millions of customers, she could have just moved on and said, hey, I don't have the stuff. But see, one of the things I know about heroes is that heroes make life better. And in that moment, she made life better for a nine-year-old little boy and his parents. And she will forever be a member of our family. And that became a, a pivotal point for us in this hero's journey. Kevin, beautifully told. It's no um, surprise why you are one of the most booked keynote speakers in the world. But that is half the story. Because if I'm not mistaken, when your son was originally diagnosed with autism and was given quite some, you know, um, unaspirational expectations from the educators, your wife became his fierce dependent and his own hero in life. And ultimately, your son did graduate from high school. And when that happened, I believe there was another trip plan. Will you either fix or fill in that story and share part B of the Disney story? Yeah, so when Josh was five years old, they cast a vision for him and they said, look, we're sorry, um, he has autism. He's uneducable in many ways. He's not gonna learn like the other kids. It's gonna be a steep climb, mom and dad, you need to, need to get ready. And it hit me in that moment that people will live up to or down to the vision we cast for them. And I looked over at Lisa and the tears streamed down her face for about 30 seconds. And then she went to work. She took a hold of that storyline that life was trying to give our five-year-old kid. And she rewrote it. I remember she looked at our son and she said, you cover your ears, don't you listen to him? She said, mom's got a different plan for you. You keep your eyes right here on mom. And for 18 years, I've had the privilege and the honor of watching this leader with the title of mother do her work. And it's amazing when you have a compelling vision for your life, for your business, the people that matter to you. Oh, listen, the resources start to show up. Listen, that, that vision is, has drawn in teachers, tutors, guides, mentors, coaches, people who have stopped by and poured into this kid unselfishly and left him better than they found him. And in May of 2016, he did graduate high school and he went on to college. But when he graduated high school, we were so proud of him. He graduated with honors. And when, he, when we got home that night from graduation, I said, you know, we're really proud of you, son. And he's still in his cap and gown. We're at the dinner table. He's holding his diploma. We're passing it around. And I said, you know, mom and I are really proud of you and we love you so much. To reward you, we'll take you anywhere you want to go in the world. And the first thing that came out of his mouth was, dad, I want to go see Aunt B. And I'm like, come on, man, you've got to be kidding. He said, no, I want to go see Aunt B. And in May of 2016, the email started flying between Josh and Aunt B because they had stayed connected for nearly a decade at that point because of one moment in time when he was nine years old. And they planned the perfect reunion and we went back to Orlando in July of 2016 for another eight days, July of 2016, which was a mistake because the average temperature in Orlando in July is 478 degrees. But we went back for another eight days and we caught up with our old friend at Hollywood and Vine restaurant. And we spent two and a half hours with Aunt B on that day. And she told us her apple pancake story. She said, you know, when you were here in 2007, I didn't know anything about autism. 
from that day till this, I have not stopped learning about the effects of nutrition on kids like Josh. You've made me better at what I love to do. Thank you. And I was so stunned in that moment, so stunned to think that one moment in time, you see something always lingers when we leave. And the question is always what? And we always think that influence is a one-way street. And what I've learned is it's always a two-way street. We knew how Aunt B had influenced our life. We had no idea what Josh Brown had left behind for her. She said, you know, when you were here in 2007, we didn't have a special dietary meal program for kids like Josh. After you left, we said that's unacceptable and we went back to work. We created a new program for kids like Josh. And in 2016, we'll serve over 1 million kids like your son. Thank you for what you've done for our business. She said, this is how I train my chefs. It's the gold standard. We call it the apple pancakes experience. And, and in, in full transparency, I was overwhelmed at that moment thinking I need to get this trademark before they do. And it really hit me in that moment, the power of one moment in time as leaders, as parents, as colleagues, as fellow human beings, the power of one moment in time, if we're actually willing to show up in this moment and make life better, if we're willing to show up in this moment and pour the best of ourselves into the people we serve and serve with, there's enormous power in these moments. The sad truth is we miss most of them. Kevin, thank you for sharing that beautiful story about a transition figure in not just your life and your wife's, Lisa's, and Josh Brown, your son, but obviously now in a million plus kids' lives that, lives that uh, uh, go to Disney and have breakfast and eat. And I'm sure there are many Aunt B's across not just the Walt Disney Company, but many other companies that perhaps behind the scenes are doing heroic things, heroic things that are doing heroic things um, for people who need them and don't know about them. Uh, I want to take a moment and talk about what you define as four characteristics of a hero. Now, three plus years into this podcast, we've had many heroes, right? Uh, Four-star generals. We've had Pulitzer Prize winning authors. We've had very famous, uh, unfortunately famous, but famous people who've been victims of very public crimes. And these are, of course, heroes in our lives as victim rights advocates or as war heroes, people who've sacrificed literally their careers, their families, their lives for our freedoms in our country. You share a great story about uh, I think some friends of yours that are, are um, unabashed champions of military heroes, a hysterical story in the book. Let's talk about the four characteristics of heroes. Kind of a quick um, speed round, if you will. Number one, real life heroes always do whatever they can to help others with no strings attached. Expand on that. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think we all know that being helpful is good for business. Being a good servant is good for the bottom line. But what I've learned is that most people are only willing to be helpful to the extent that there's a return on investment, right? What's in it for me? What's, what do I get? I'll scratch your back, but I have an itch too. And what I learned is that heroes understand that part too, that little dot, 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 no strings attached. That's where, that's that extra mile piece that we hear so much about, the platitude of going the extra mile. But really the extra mile is just one more step than everyone else is willing to take. Think about Aunt B. Aunt B didn't have to go to the store. She didn't have to go do that. We were content, we were happy with the service we got, but she understood that heroes reach beyond what is required to do the remarkable. They own that dot, dot, dot. The second characteristic, Kevin, is real life heroes create an exceptional experience for those they serve and serve with. Yeah, absolutely. You think about leadership, you think about parenting, you think about customer service, the customer experience. 
Heroes create an exceptional experience for the people they serve and serve with. We hear things like, in our society today, we hear things like random acts of kindness. Listen, I, I don't think kindness should ever be random. In fact, I think it should garner our utmost intention. And what I know about heroes is that they never leave anything to chance. They are very intentional about creating an environment that gives people the best experience they could possibly get, an environment where they can be the best version of themselves, an environment where they have this, 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 this moment where they say, man, I want to do that again. And they, they come back for more. And that's what heroes do. They always leave them wanting more. Kevin, you write that the third characteristic of a hero is they're the first to raise their hands and take responsibility for creating the best outcomes. This makes me think of, of course, Aunt B at Walt Disney. Talk about that. Absolutely. You know, we live in a world right now, Scott, where it's, everybody wants to point the finger. It's easy to push integrity outside of ourselves and blame other people. And one thing I know about heroes is they take 100% responsibility for their life and everything in it. 100% for their attitude, their actions, and their results. And Aunt B could have blamed another department. She could have blamed leadership. She could have blamed us for not reading the menu. But she didn't do that. She raised her hand and said, what can I do right now in this moment to make life better for this kid? What can I do to serve at a higher level? And we will always pay a premium for that. But in the absence of it, we become commoditized and compete on price every single time. Kevin nicely said, lastly, you mentioned the fourth characteristic of everyday heroes is they see life and each other through the lens of optimism and abundance. That's tough right now, especially, you know, in the midst of what is the second or third round of this pandemic that is just, you know, crushing healthcare workers. It's crushing parents and employers and airlines and hospitals and cruise ships. And every day, it seems like it's just stomping on us. It's hard right now to be optimistic and abundant. What would you say to the seven and a half billion people in the world that are finding it unrealistic to think abundantly and optimistically right now. Yeah, it is hard. And I don't think we can sugarcoat that. And a lot of the industries that you just mentioned, I do a lot of work in those industries. Uh, I just did a lot of work with, with the hot hospital system in Oklahoma. And the front lines are beat up. The front lines are feeling hopeless. One of the things that I know about optimism, and optimism is a skill set. I'm not naturally a positive person. The environment that I grew up in what I went through, I am not naturally wired to be positive. And when I talk about optimism, I wanna be very clear that I am not talking about positive thinking. I think sometimes as positive thinkers, we can go down a path that's not reality-based. We can put our head in the sand and we can, just, we can just fire off the platitudes and think if we say the right things that everything's gonna be okay. That's not what I'm talking about. What I am talking about is a skill set, the ability, as my friend Simon Bailey would say, to see what everybody else sees, but to understand it differently. And I think as an optimist, we look at things that are happening. We look at change, we look at chaos, we look at crisis, and we understand the reality of it, but we don't have to accept the finality of it. And I think that's the key to optimism is understanding there is an end to this season. There is hope. There are reasons to be hopeful. There are reasons to be grateful. There are reasons to think abundantly in this season because there's a lot of industries that have done quite well. There are a lot of organizations that have stretched and adapted and shifted because what I know is the goals didn't change. For any of our organizations, the goals didn't change, but the path changed. 
And we had to figure out new and better ways. We had to dig deep. We had to find that place within us, that reservoir where we could rise up in this moment. Because here's what I know, crisis doesn't make heroes. It simply reveals them. And that's where we are right now. And optimism, I think, is a superpower. I think it gives us supernatural vision. We can see what everybody else sees, but understand it differently. And I think that's a powerful tool to have right now. Kevin, thank you for that gift, because I am, I think I'm a naturally positive person. I'm probably more of a realist than I am an optimist. I have bouts of pessimism because I'm a realist. Me too. But I think it's important to take it a day at a time, to recognize that, you know, we're going to get through this. We're not all in the same boat. We are metaphorically all in the same storm. And you got to kind of look longer term. This is a bit of an outlier. But I think my favorite quote in the book actually came from something your father told you. And I'm going to read it to you. Again, it's a bit of an outlier in terms of context. But I want you to remind everybody the power that your dad said, never burn a bridge because someday I might have to walk back across it. And I think it's a good place to end our conversation because it's so true. You share in the context of you know, leaving your corporate job and taking this risk as a speaker and an author, but it's also relevant, is it not, with our relationships, our, our you know, former partners or spouses or former leaders or colleagues, and when we're tempted, perhaps with good reason, to put someone in their place or to end a friendship, and that might be the best decision then and forever. But when you talk about how important it is to think about the future as an optimist, as an abundant person, heroes don't burn bridges because they may have to walk back across them. Absolutely. And the context of that conversation was really about forgiveness. And one of the things my dad always taught me and my mentor, David, was that there are right ways to leave. And I see it all the time. I've, I've, I've coached people, I've mentored people who have left organizations, relationships the wrong way. And I think it's really important. When I left my corporate career, I left the right way. And today, they're my biggest fans. They support me. I support them. And I think it's really important how we leave an organization, how we leave a relationship, because we never know. None of us saw this pandemic coming. None, none of us, uh, you know, we see things in our life that, that we didn't see coming. And you don't know what tomorrow holds. And right now, all we have is this moment. And the people around us, the organizations around us, we don't know when we need to reach back out to them. And if we've torched that bridge, if we've blown it up, then we have nothing to go back to. And I think, I think it's really important, especially now. And if, if, if this season, the season of COVID has taught us nothing, it's that life is short. We take a lot for granted and that we need each other. Kevin Brown, you're the author of the book, Unleashing Your Hero, Rise Above Any Challenge, Expand Your Impact, and Be the Hero the World Needs. When I walked into your book some weeks ago, I thought of heroes as people like Senator John McCain and Elizabeth Smart for different reasons, but for reasons that are, I think, important nonetheless. And although you don't, by any means, in my opinion, dumb down the heroic nature of their survival and contribution and lessons that people like those two examples are teaching, you do validate your reader, today's listeners and viewers, and all of the parents, the mothers who are giving up their careers to help their Josh Browns. You validate my sister-in-law, Cindy, 
who, like you, has two children on the autism spectrum, has a child that has you know, very debilitating needs, and she's given up most of her life. She's you know, had stress in her marriage to my brother. She's had her own emotional, mental, physical health issues, dedicating her life to being the hero to two of her three children that have significant special needs. It has eliminated her career. She was a very accomplished engineer, went to some of the finest schools in the world. And I speak to the countless Cindy Millers around the world that have selflessly given of themselves and asked for nothing in return. Her children are incapable of showing gratitude. They're not capable of doing it because of their disorders and their um, seemingly endless health challenges that aren't her fault and aren't their fault and was the lot they were given. And I think what you do most beautifully is you, without dumbing down the definition of hero, you give inspiration and validation to millions of people who are everyday heroes that are lifting others up and not doing it in a way of, that creates a martyrdom or victim mentality. That's easy to get into, is it not, sometimes when you're you know, putting yourself second. What final words would you leave to people who may need some validation and some remembrance that you know, they didn't achieve their success on their own, that they are the benefit of people who stopped by and, quote, poured into them? Mm-hmm. Um, send us off with some inspiration. Yeah. Well, every, every group that you just mentioned, they're all heroes. And you, there are some heroes that are larger than life. You mentioned John McCain, larger than life figure, uh, t- tremendous what he went through, tremendous what he contributed. And when you think about heroes, every single person that I've ever asked, what does a hero look like? They always say heroes are ordinary people who do extraordinary things. And we learned on this journey that it's exactly the opposite. Because if you buy into that definition, ordinary people doing extraordinary things, by default, you have to convince yourself that you're ordinary in the first place. And I personally don't think that's how it was drawn up. I don't think there's anybody on this planet that was put here to make an ordinary contribution. But sometimes we go through life saying things because we've heard them over and over again and we begin to believe them. We believe that heroes are extraordinary people who choose not to be ordinary. And whatever role that you've been placed in, whether that's a mom or a dad, whether that's a frontline healthcare worker, an educator, whether that's a member of our great armed forces, you know, men and women all over the world protecting us and keeping us free. There are heroes at every level. You can look in gas stations and grocery stores, drive-throughs and dry cleaners, and you can find people who show up and they live those four qualities that we talked about. They show up and they make life better. They show up and they choose not to be ordinary. And we're all the beneficiaries of that. And being a hero doesn't mean doing big things. It just means doing things in a great way. It means showing up with the very best of who you are and giving that to us because I think that's the responsibility. You see, far too many people go through life and they keep those talents, gifts, and abilities to themselves. They, they decide to play at a small level. They, they, they decide to play at an ordinary level and they deprive the rest of us from their genius. And I always wonder, and I'll, I'll leave you with this. I always wonder when people choose to be ordinary, how many inventions, how many innovations, how many cures, how many things that would make life better for millions of people around this world do we never get the benefit of? Do we never see become real because somebody chose to be ordinary? Heroes are extraordinary people who choose not to be ordinary, and I think there's a hero in every single human being on this planet. Kevin, thanks for your time today. My pleasure, Scott. Thanks for having me. 
And thanks for joining us. We'll see you back next week for a new guest on leadership.